Hi, this is John Burlingame, host of Disney's Four Scores podcast. In this podcast series, we bring together the most accomplished film and television composers working today and reveal the emotional journeys, inspirations, and unique challenges of their work. Our guest today is one of the most acclaimed and sought-after composers currently working in film. He has won six Grammys for the music of such films as American Beauty, WALL-E, and Skyfall. He has an Emmy for Six Feet Under and 15 Oscar nominations for such scores as The Shawshank Redemption, Finding Nemo, Bridge of Spies, and 1917. He's here today to talk with us about his latest score for Disney and Pixar's Elemental. Welcome, Thomas Newman. Thank you, John. Brilliant game. So, Tom, this is your fourth Pixar film. Of course, we've mentioned Finding Nemo and Wally, but there's also been Finding Dory. Can you talk in general about working on Pixar films and if the process is very different from working in a traditional film with live action and real people on the screen? Right. Well, it is different. I mean, animation is fundamentally different than live action, and mostly because of it, it, there's so much kind of change, moment-to-moment change in an animation movie, or typically there is. A live action, you can, you know, rest in a vibe or a mood for, you know, a minute or two. Animation is much more about small ideas followed by transitions, followed by other small ideas. In terms of working for Pixar for, I guess, going on 20 years, it's a a company that really uh, encourages creativity and and kind of at a high level. They're always, I think, improving their product. If you start on a a movie in May, by November, it's funnier and sharper and and all that. Um, But but high expectations, I think, too, for, for composers. This strikes me as unlike most other Pixar films, in that we're in an entirely new world based on the elements of fire, water, air, and earth. So what did that mean in terms of creating music for this new world? Right. It's it's kind of like a parallel universe, but it is an imagined world with some of the same issues that, that I guess we have here on, on planet Earth. And that it was challenging because how do you set up music that can accompany that kind of world and also kind of respectfully respond to culture, cultural differences between these these four elements uh, in, in a way that I, I think people can relate to and, and yet not feel as if we're borrowing, you know, culturally doing any cultural borrowing. How did you begin? Oh, uh, you know, you just have an idea and then you have another idea and then you have another idea. <laughs> so beginnings are always easy because, uh, you know, anything goes, particularly when b- before you played anything for a director. So you just kind of let your mind wander. Um, I, I worked with some players, gathered many, many ideas, put them in many places all over the, the images that we had. And, uh, you know, as I typically do, you just try to ask yourself what's interesting, what works under image, why does it work under image, and I guess a a phrase I've used a lot is what's allowable vocabulary, what is the musical vocabulary that that works, and why. Uh, And then of course you start talking to a a director and you see if if there's compatibility kind of uh, ideologically. Did Peter Sohn, your director, have specific ideas about what he wanted, or did he kind of leave it up to you? Um, there was Im- Im- implied ideas. There was temp music, some of which was very interesting. But I think, no, I, I think there was going to be this moment where we just began. And, you know, the thing about, I think, beginning with any director is a sense of, of predisposition about what something should be and having new ideas going up against those pre- predispositions and hoping that new ideas might win out. So do you improvise with your fellow musicians, guys that you, I know, have worked with for many years, 
and sort of come up with new sounds that way? Always. I mean, uh, the, the great joy I get out of it is at these beginning stages where if I've talked to players and or they've seen parts of the movie and, and, and what is it like and what kind of instruments does it kind of uh, conjure. And then coming in with some very loose ideas um, and then getting input from players on types of colors under certain scenes. And then as I say, kind of having a reactive mentality, which is here's an idea, here's an image. Does does this idea work under that image? And and then so it's it's very loose and intuitive as opposed to intellectual because in a movie like this, if you really say, if you start asking yourself uh, things about, you know, what, what would be cultural implications of a fire people versus a water people, you can really get kind of knotted up in terms of what that means. So I kind of just discarded any kind of intellectual premise and said, I'm just going to improvise. We're going to have many different ideas and we're going to see what grabs us and, and go from there. Is it like being in a band? It is. I, I've, I've probably said this to you before. It's like uh, you put a corral around these people, but not do do not put them on a leash. You, you know, you want creative input from these guys who have so much in them. And I just have this theory that all of us feel underexpressed. And if I can put musicians in a place where they feel open to expression and and open to having new ideas, that it's a benefit to all of us. So yeah, I, I run a loose ship. Was there footage? Were you able to, when you guys started, were you able to look at images, either drawings or possibly even early footage? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't remember if the f first blush was just, here's some ideas next to nothing. But I think we got images pretty quickly. They, and some of them were drawing storyboards and things like that. But, you know, in a very casual environment, it's good to put up an image just in the background, you know, that's running, not that you're working to a, a specific two or three minutes where you're really trying to catch things. But here is a vibe and a feeling of this imagery and, and what, what can we capture, you know, musically. So when you're in that period of time, when you're trying new ideas and you're, you're listening to new sounds, was there something that jumped out at you as to say, this is going, this is like great for a fire person, this is great for a water person, or is it even more broad in terms of relationships and ideas and sort of general soundscapes? Yeah, or action, you know, is it location, is it character, or is it, you know, kind of dramatic uh, stuff? I think all of the above, and I, and I kind of get a little hard-pressed to remember I mean, the act of creativity for me is so fluid and intuitive that I honestly don't remember how I come up with ideas or how ideas are conjured so much as my ears start responding to them and saying, yeah, this is this is uh, interesting. I mean, in the case of this movie, a lot of it was, you know, vocal chatters or, or phrase rhythms coming out of, of skin drums. And, and, and uh, I guess in the case of water, struck metal or, or vibraphone, things that, that were more watery in color. In terms of fire, maybe more plucked instruments or, or, or bowed dulcimers, things of that sort. You spoke about the vocal elements of this, and that's one of the things that really jumped out at me as I was watching the film. It strikes me as a different style than I may have heard from you in the past. A lot of vocal elements here, and, and some of them felt kind of Indian or at the very least sort of Asian inspired. 
Can you talk about that? Am I barking up the wrong tree at all here? No, I don't think you're barking up the wrong tree. I, I, again, this, th- it's this notion that here's an imaginary world kind of parallel to our world and and wh- what kind of sounds do do you reach for and hopefully not land in but point towards. And I think that was th- the idea there was that you're pointing towards a cultural something, but you're not reaching from it which sounds like maybe too much talk, uh, which is, by the way, why I continue to just say intuitively, I like this sound as opposed to here's why I have this sound. I, I just didn't want it to come from a, a, a concept as much as just a reaction to, to color to my ears. So they're not singing words or anything in any specific language. No, there's some, in, in some instances, there, there was a, a, a made language uh, fireish for the movie, and in some instances there is some an intoning of syllables, but nothing of any kind of meaning. Nothing that you could even say it sounds like a language, and it, that means this word in that language. Nothing, I think, like that. Some of the sounds that I was hearing, and and I. I invariably was trying to pick it out and figure out what am I, am I listening? Is it a sitar? Is it a tabla? And I'm not sure any of those uh, were applicable. I know, you know, our friend George Deering plays all these wonderful, cool sounding world music instruments. And I mean, that's, it's true. In those cases, typically we just tried to put a lot of processing on these sounds. So again, that it pointed towards, but didn't land in. But yes, there is sitar. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, there are tabla rhythms and, and kind of vocal vocal rhythms, both male and female. And there's some bamboo flute somewhere, I think, isn't there? Are there? Yeah, there must be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, the, just the, the the amount of instruments or different colors that we use was was pretty plentiful. I'm, I'm guessing they probably were in the hundreds because these guys all have a million instruments. Yeah. I mean, that's one great thing about these players is they're so flexible on so many instruments. And in, in, and in so many kind of styles that I was really trying to get that out of them. So this is a father-daughter story in part. It's a, an opposites attract love story in part. And it's a second generation immigrant story in part, all of which are interesting in and of themselves. And I'm wondering, did those elements inspire you to write themes or sound concepts or motifs or things that you could then weave through the score? I I don't think I ever thought generally like that. I tend to not do that because it sounds studious to me. And to be studying always makes me feel like I'm I'm more the student than, than the composer. So I think if you if you sense that coming out of the music, it probably is when it happens and it's just me responding to a scene and coming up with some kind of musical conclusions that then I could retro-justify on the other side of having done it all as opposed to say, well, I, I carried out a task. I don't think I w- I've ever really done that. Like, here's my idea and I'm going to execute that idea so much as here's a great idea that you know, stimulates me and 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 pleases my ears, and I, I want more of it. It's gluttonous, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so all of these wonderful sounds that you created with your musician partners, did they all go into a kind of sort of 
big library of sorts that you could then draw from when you were in your studio actually writing specific music to picture? I suppose, although it's not that organized. I mean, I, I think I have a pretty good way of remembering things. Part of it is if I, if I write for a scene, there's something about it that I like, and if I don't hear it, I like it less, and it makes me then able to remember what's there and then how I can exploit it maybe somewhere else. So it's, I guess the answer is yes, but it's, it's not organized. I, it's, it's not like I, I, I'm procedural in, in my approach at all. It's just, it's, again, it remains pretty intuitive. What was the process like in terms of your Pixar partners? Were there visits from your filmmaking colleagues, or would you go up there and share music with them? Uh, when I say up there, I mean up in the Pixar Emeryville, HQ yeah. Yeah, at Emeryville. There, there were visits. It seemed like it was more remote uh, than I remember. Well, actually, when we did Finding Dory, I just don't think remote was nearly as, as meaningful in terms of an ability to have a, a, a good meeting. There's something tougher about a remote meeting, um, you know, with, with Peter Sohn in a, a screening room at Pixar and like kind of in the shadows over there and, you know, row five or something. You know, you start by sharing whatever ideas you have. And there was a moment that I, I recognized that Pete might like an idea but not know where it came from or where it was going to. And then there was a slightly desperate moment I had where I thought, shoot, I really need to just start writing in chronology. I need to start from reel one and play through reels for, for Pete so that he knew where he was. And that was, I don't remember ever doing that quite so aggressively uh, as, a, as a kind of creative approach. But when we would present, we would literally do a little rough mix from beginning of a reel to an end, or, or some some meaningful moment that uh, began and some meaningful moment that ended, like a, just a chunk of the movie. And I think it became a lot easier for Pete to kind of understand what what we were doing and have a, a better idea of, of how, how to respond. How long a process was this? A matter of months or even maybe a year? More like seven or eight months, I think. Um, but, you know, crazy busy months starting like in, you know, July through November or something were just like recording all the time. Mm, of last year. Yeah. And, and much of it remote, which had its advantages, ironically, in its own way, but kind of one-on-one -on -one with the player. When you say remote, does that mean that the players are in their own studios and you're not all together? Yeah. Yeah, kind of. It's kind of a COVID model. But what was interesting about the COVID model is uh, someone like George Deering has so many just available instruments uh, that having him work at his own studio just made us be, be able to try anything, as opposed to here's the the stuff he could fit in his car where right. he, would, <laughs> right. he would load in. Uh, and Steve Tavaloni, um, another you know, there was Steve Tavaloni and John Beasley, a keyboardist, and Rick Cox, uh, a programmer. Uh, but Steve lives in Riverside, and it was it became a really easy thing to say, can can we get together at 8 a.m. for three hours? I mean, it, it in a way, it became very flexible in the manner in which we could engage. So that part of it was was really great, just how fluid it was. Yeah, that's that's actually one of the rare, I guess, new advantages we've got from the COVID period is this whole idea of recording remotely just as professionally as it, we would have been in a room. Yeah, I mean, it, there are issues with it. We, we had to set up rigs in each of these 
players' studios so that the recordings would originate with them so that there, you know, this is probably obvious, but so that any glitches in listening would be monitor glitches and not recording glitches. Right. So all of, all of the files had to begin from them and record was kind of pressed in that environment. Sure. And, and I was a passive listener, so that was a, that's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there is orchestra here too, mm -hmm. right? So all the long you were writing for orchestra, although the recordings for orchestra presumably came at the end, or were you doing orchestra all along the way? I think we did it in two separate periods. And part of that was just to give Peter Sohn a, 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 a taste of the process. You know, th this process that I've been kind of developing over many years is so obvious to me, but so unobvious to others. I mean, so you know, this notion of what, what is pre-recorded? What am I hearing out in, in a room with, with an orchestra? I, meaning anyone in a booth, it can get very confusing about what am I listening to? What is the nature of, in, in, you know, in the case of, of this, it was orchestra, strings, woodwinds, percussion, brass, and how did that meld with all these, these prelays? Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a complex process to understand and it, it's important for a director to know what he's listening to and therefore what he needs to have a critical ear about. Because oftentimes, issues that he might have uh, are not issues that we were recording with orchestra. The Four Scores playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the music you love whenever you like. So to go back to the characters in the story for a second, is there an ember theme? Is there a wade theme? Or is it, I, I suppose to use a, an elemental word, kind of fluid? <laughs> <laughs> um, I get there may be a, like an ember motif, an ember, uh, you know, Bernie, her dad, a motif for the two of them. There's a song that was kind of a, a tune for the two of them falling in love. But I have to think about it. It's so funny because, as I say, the, the process is fluid. And then I think, because I, I, I anticipate these questions and think, darn, I, I, I don't quite know how to answer them in any way that, that really makes sense. But... This is one of the things that I love about music. It's next to impossible to explain or describe because it's so involved with feelings. Yeah, and it's so abstract that, you know, we use words like color, you know, to describe music. I mean, what is the color of a bowed dulcimer? And is it, you know, zizzy and, you know, whatever whatever it is that we can say about it, um, we, we have to substitute words because music is abstraction and ethereal, which is so great, you know. And it's magical. And that's one of the things that I think brings Elemental to life is the music that you've brought to this, to this really wonderful story. I found myself quite moved, you know, by the end of the film, uh, in part because so many of the things spoke to me personally the, with the story that was being told about family, about opposites attract. And although the second generation immigrant doesn't really speak to me, um, I know it will to a lot of people out there. Yeah, I mean, Peter talks a lot about the idea of growing up in the Bronx as a Korean-American and feeling neither Korean nor American. And so this, this notion of otherness, I think, was an important thing for him to, to, to find expression for. Did you record the orchestra here in Los Angeles? I did, at Fox. And, which of course is known as the Newman Scoring Stage. Only you can say that. <laughs> <laughs> How big an orchestra is it? 
Uh, 60 strings, double winds, six horns, three trumpets, three trombones, tuba, uh, two percussions, uh, two, two percussionists, uh, and timpani. And is the piano that we're hearing you? It is. So you're, you, you play piano on all your scores. I play a certain type of piano. If it's groovy piano, if it's, if it's a, a kind of style piano, John Beasley would do that much better than me. So, uh, you know, and, and there, is, there, is, there is playing that, that he's done in, in a overdub, prelay kind of way. So you also collaborated on a song in this movie. The song is called Steal the Show. Tell us about that and who your co-writers were, who we're listening to. The artist is named Lauv. Ari Leff is his name. He was kind of hired onto the show uh, before I, maybe before I was, around the same time. There was a moment where he came to the studio. I had gathered several ideas that, you know, I am meeting him and sharing ideas. And uh, one that he liked an awful lot. And we talked about it for a while, and he said, listen, do you mind leaving me alone for an hour or so? And I went downstairs, and uh, he kind of did a lot of you know, very effective work in, in a short period of time, enough to kind of say, okay, there's a beginning of a shape. We met the next day, more work was done, and, and then uh, over a period of, you know, two or three weeks, or may maybe a little bit more, he completed the lyrics, and the, the song was kind of... And I guess by, by then, too, I, I was we, we were kind of volleying uh, certain ideas back and forth remotely. And it was uh, then presented to, to Peter Sohn and Denise Reem, the producer, and, and it was approved. You're an old hand at songs anyway. I'm not sure about that. I mean, you know, the thing about about collaborating with someone you don't know. I mean, the 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 players I've worked with, I've worked with forever. So there's there's a real sense of what it means to fail in front of others that, <laughs> that know you well, but still a, a nervousness about failing in front of someone that that you don't know well at all. And you know, the, the, this notion of wanting to please others is probably on my mind more than it should be. And clearly, there was no failure here. <laughs> well, you know, you fear it just because <laughs> you know it's easy to imagine it. <laughs> Okay, so you're the second member of the Newman family to contribute music to Pixar films. Your cousin Randy kicked it all off in the yeah. mid-90s with Toy Story. Have you two ever compared notes on writing music for Pixar films? He talked to me when I did Finding Nemo. He had done Toy Story. Bugs Life. Bugs Life. And was there... Maybe Monsters, Inc.? I think those three, yeah, those three, and then Finding Nemo, I think, was fourth. So he had done the first three movies. They had kind of derived a, a manner of working with Randy, which was, you know, a, a small bit of image to picture, maybe, t you know, uh, rather music to picture of like 10 minutes or something, followed by a writing period where there was a, the body of work was done, uh, followed by another writing period where he was finishing up and maybe doing fixes and changes. Randy just said, don't look at more than 10 minutes because if you do, you'll really freak, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I think is true. You look at any huge job and if you really want to take it on and you're, you know, working on an anglerfish chase, knowing that there's going to be a jellyfish moment, it's, it's slightly overwhelming. So it was try to, to, to make finite progress and to, and to keep moving forward was his advice. So that was good advice. It was. It was great advice. He's always been, you know, exceptionally generous to me. Yeah. And, and, and Randy Newman sort of established the sound of Pixar in some ways. That's right. And I think when I started, my wonder was what 
is animated movie music supposed to be? You know, is it supposed to be Carl Stalling? Is it, I mean, how much of a fish wiggle do you have to, you know, musically accommodate? Yeah. And I remember at a certain point, Andrew Stanton, who directed Nemo, uh, just said, no, you just score the scene. I mean, I don't think Pixar was at all interested in being anything other than what they were, what what the movies were, and that they wanted them to be scored meaningfully, but not like in the style of or in in to honor, you know, animation of the past. I get the impression that Pixar views music as a, a key element in the storytelling process, values yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, I think in, in essence, they just value creative contribution and they're real hardworking people. All of them really work hard. And they expect that of you. They expect it with a smile, but they still expect it, you know. It's been 20 years now since your first Pixar film. An entire generation has now grown up with your music. So you're now part of a grand history that includes people like the Sherman Brothers and Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. So as part of the grand sort of saga of Disney scoring, how does that feel? You know, it's funny. I, I don't think I've ever thought of it that way. I mean, maybe it's kind of like, you know, I'm, I, in my own mind, I'm still a 20-something person, you know, making music as opposed to thinking I, I matter or that that, that there, I have a, a place in the community. Um, but as you say it, it's, it sounds pretty good. <laughs> I guess I'll take it. <laughs> so when you came to the very beginning of the film, that seems like an important moment to sort of establish a sound or a theme or a color. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, the issue was uh, Bernie and Cinder, mom and dad. We see them first ocean and mist and then finally a boat and a small flame, I think. But then we see a city, and then we see a place of immigration, and then we open the doors to Element City, and, you know, story starts to happen. And in essence, the opening is in two parts, this whole opening up to the point where they find a home to live, uh, and then uh, we see an elemental card, the title of the movie, followed by a montage of Ember as a small infant all the way to, to growing up. So the issue was you're establishing tone, but also pace, and it's a montage beginning. So it was it was challenging to know how much musical pace needed to take place and how to help the audience know when the actual present tense story uh, was beginning. So that was slightly tricky. And did that take weeks to accomplish? Yeah, probably talking about it with Pete. You know, what is the music opening the door? And then how does that how does it build when the two of them in, in the train, the wetro they call it, cross the, the river to Firetown, that there's this sense of otherness and, and unbelonging and not wanting to be necessarily too dark about it, that it still was exposition and that it needed color and musical content and dramatic content, but it didn't want to be off-putting. It didn't want to say too much. I mean, that's, I guess, the thing about music always is what, what you try not to say so that the movie has enjoyment and invites the audience in as opposed to says too much and, you know, pushes the audience away. It sounds incredibly complicated and challenging. It, it was, and, and, and I, I listen to it now and I think, wow, we, we accomplished it well, but it was not at all obvious as to, as to what should be caught, when an idea should change, and also when I, and an idea should refresh. So how much... 
how much kind of form content existed followed by how much contrast. I think that was was the issue. And then and then in the actual montage where you really see her growing up, there's a whole kind of a pace element to that 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 hopefully adds more refreshment and and, and more a sense of okay, we're we're moving further into the story even though our story hasn't begun. It's, it's all backstory. About the first six or seven minutes are our backstory. I was listening to the to the album yesterday and was thinking how much rhythm plays an important part and I kept thinking he must be needing to move the story along because there's a lot of movement in this music. Yeah, it's probably something I like. I mean, I, I think I think time, groove, pace just interests me. When I also work with these players, they're just just to try to establish, you know, a pattern and rhythm is just a joy to bring out of these guys. I'm sure glad we asked that question. So thank you, Tom, for being with us today and for sharing your experiences on Elemental. Oh, it's a total pleasure, John, always. Thank you. Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores Playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer and songwriter featured in the podcast series, including the score by Thomas Newman from Pixar's Elemental. Check out Disney and Pixar's Elemental in theaters and listen to the soundtrack wherever music is enjoyed.